This is the Birth Village Podcast. Hi, welcome back to the Birth Village Podcast. I am Morgan Brower, and today we will be discussing facts on newborn procedures with Janae Sherman, who is a midwife here in Southern Utah. Hi, Janae. Thanks Hi. for being with me today. Yeah, it's going to be good. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in midwifery? Yeah, so um, I guess it starts with my birth, my own birth. I was born at home on accident. <laughs> um, and so growing up, I always knew that I wanted to have my babies at home. Um, and then as I got older, I originally wanted to be a paramedic. Oh, and my gosh. So I was kind of in that medical field anyway. And then just one day just kind of hit me that like I should be a midwife. Huh. So um, like I knew what midwives were. I have a great, great grandmother that was a midwife when Utah was being settled. And okay. um, so anyway, I kind of I started when I had my first baby um, when she was one. I started apprenticing with a midwife here in town, and then I worked with her for about five years, and I've been taking my own clients for about 16. That is super cool. Yeah. I didn't know that you started in paramedics. Yeah. <laughs> That's fun. Yep. So we'll just jump right in. We're going to go over just everything that's going to happen to your baby after you have your baby. And the reason that we want to do this is just because we want people to know that they do have options. A lot of times women will just do whatever is normal policy and, and procedure and they just they don't look into anything but we know that it's important to understand what's happening to your body to your baby's body and make choices that feel appropriate to you so we just wanted to touch on everything that will happen to your baby after they are born at least in that first little bit of time and um, give some information on all of those things so that people can make their own decisions based off of the information that they get. Sounds good. So let's just start with after baby is born, what happens? Okay. Um, so the first thing that you would probably have some discussion about, and hopefully this happens before your birth, but it talks about cord clamping. So um, research has been coming out in the medical field about the benefits of delayed cord clamping. And what that means is that you don't clamp or cut the cord until for a certain time. Okay. Or until you can feel a pulse in the cord until that's gone. Mm -hmm. The benefits of that is it gives your baby the extra blood volume it needs now that it's using its lungs to oxygenate instead of just the cord. Okay. And so between one to three minutes, your baby's going to get 80 to 100 milliliters of blood in that time frame. Home birth babies, it's just standard. We wait until cords are either completely done pulsing or placentas are delivered. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've seen anywhere from like three minutes, which I'm honestly shocked when that happens. <laughs> That's really fast up to like 10 to 15 minutes. Okay. Um, but it just kind of makes that transition from babies not breathing air to breathing air a lot more um, peaceful for that baby. For and them. Gives them the blood volume. Long-term benefits would be um, it gives the baby all of those blood cells so their iron vol iron concentrations are higher, mm. and it um, which benefits their mental development. Really? So, yeah, they're less anemic for the first six months before they start eating food and things. So, gives them all the good stem cells. 
Um, it helps transfer immunoglobins into the baby, which is for their immune system, things like that. So, and they're not getting any of this when it, when you clamp it right away. Yeah, no, they get a little bit with their first breath, but they lose out on quite a bit if you just clamp it right away and Mm -hmm. hospitals are doing better. They're doing a lot better now. Like they'll give the babies like a minute. So they're getting (laughs) some, but okay. Yeah. You said that hopefully this discussion happens before your birth. So this is something that you need to discuss with your provider way before you're in labor. For sure. Yes. And definitely have a birth plan. Put that on there. Discuss it with the nurses when you go in. Yeah. Um, If you're in a hospital setting. In a home birth setting, um, usually you're having these discussions anyway. Yeah. But whoever your care provider is, whether it's a midwife or an OB, family doc, just make sure that you're having the conversation Mm. because we can't read minds. Yeah. So. Are there any risks or dangers to not delaying the clamping? Like clamping right away? Yeah. No. I mean, you just miss out on all the benefits of this transition is harder. Um, Like there's not a risk to leaving a cord alone. Yeah. They used to say babies could get too many red blood cells, but studies have found that that's actually not the case. Um, Sometimes they said that it increases the risk of, rate of postpartum hemorrhage but that's actually not the case either like you mm. can look at studies and they've done that it doesn't increase those rates at all so mm. you might have a little bit of a higher rate of jaundice but nothing that's like critically yeah affecting anything okay yeah. delay the cord clamp yeah. then that's delay the first clamping. thing yeah <laughs> then what what happens next so then you're gonna have like a newborn exam which weights and measurements and all of that but that's not much um part of that i guess the next thing would be you have two injections that are given to babies standard. One is vitamin K and the other is hepatitis B. And like my opinion isn't one is one option is good and one option is bad. I think it's just important that parents like do their research ahead of time mm-hmm. and decide what's right for their baby. Yeah. So I'm not like saying that you should do this for sure. You should not do this for sure. Yeah. This, it's just information. Like yeah. it's all about education, informed consent. That's yeah. the biggest thing. Informed so, consent. Yes, informed <laughs> consent. And so with vitamin K, this is something that they give babies to help blood clotting. So babies are born with really low blood clotting factors at birth. Um, vitamin K is created through the gut. And so mm-hmm. since babies aren't eating, it's not being, and their gut isn't being used. Okay. They so have, it's not being created. Yeah. They have low vitamin K factors at birth. And so... It takes about a week for mom's milk to come in and babies to nurse and all that stuff to start happening. So around day eight, the baby's clotting factors will be the highest and then it levels off to normal. The reason they give vitamin K is because there's what's called vitamin K deficiency bleeding in some babies. Okay. You have three different types. You have early, classic, and late. And so your early babies, it's early vitamin K deficiency bleeding, These are babies who are born to mothers who have been taking medications either for like tuberculosis or seizure medications, which automatically makes babies at risk. Oh, So if a mom's on those medications, the baby's at a higher risk for having this. And the risk is they're bleeding. Right. They have internal bleeds. Internal bleeds. Okay. Um, So this is within the first 24 hours. 
Then you have classic, which shows up between day two and seven in that first week. And also with internal bleeding. So yeah, so this one has a few different ways that it manifests. You can have, like you'd see blood in their poop, blood coming out of their umbilical stump. Um, If babies are circumcised within that time, they might have higher bleeding rates if, if they're not given vitamin K. So when you look at numbers, like from studies, you have 0.25 to 1.7% of babies will develop this without any treatment. So babies that aren't given vitamin K, that's the percentage of babies that will have vitamin K deficiency bleeding in the classic setting. Usually it's mild. They give the baby vitamin K shot and then um, it takes about 20 minutes oh, for wow. it to slow down. So it's a pretty quick turnaround time. So if you're paying attention to all the signs, yeah. you would catch it early. Yes, yes. Could. You could. You should, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and then what you have is late vitamin K deficiency bleeding. And so this is one that can show up between like after that first week up through actually six months of age. Oh, wow. Most often it's going to happen within the first eight weeks, but it can continue on through that other time frame. So you would have bleeding in their poop again, out of their skin. And then this is where you would get like your internal bleeds that mm-hmm. you can't see. Ooh. And the risk is if they have any brain bleeds. So yeah. That's kind of your main concern. Um, studies have shown that it's higher in Asian population. And when you look at like the numbers of babies that don't have vitamin K mm-hmm. shot or drops, and we'll talk about that, given at birth. So the the numbers of these babies would be 4.4 to 7.2 babies out of 100,000. So it's okay. still low in numbers, but if it's yeah. your baby, it's 100% for you. For you. That's what I always tell people when I'm talking to them about options. Like, if it's your baby, yeah, you're the one. You if know? you're the one in 100,000 yeah. or the four in right. 100,000, you're going to be really right. sad. Yes. So these were studies that were done between um, 1981 and 1998. And these were all done like in the UK and Germany, Japan and Thailand. So that's where these numbers come from. Okay. Is potential for internal bleeding like a genetic thing or is it just random like do we know that um it can be if you have issues with like gallbladder or liver issues in your family history okay that could happen because those also help contribute to vitamin k absorption okay so it could be so your options would be don't do anything that's always an option (laughs) right and watch for symptoms in a baby you can do the shot which is just an injection that they put in like the baby's thigh within that first six hours after they're born. And that's a fat soluble vitamin. And so it just kind of sits in their little fat stores and slowly releases hmm. throughout that time frame. Um, or there's vitamin K drops. And these have become more popular in the past few years. A lot of more people are looking into this. So the way that the drops work is you do a certain dose at, at birth so for my, the drops that I use, it's four drops at birth mm-hmm. and then it's two drops every week for 12 weeks. Um, so the difference between the shot and the drops is babies who get the shot goes to zero to 0.4 out of a hundred thousand babies will get oh. the vitamin K deficiency bleeding Yeah, or with the drops, it goes to zero to 0.9 out of 100,000. So really close yeah. amounts. Like they're both pretty effective. 
Under one. Yeah. Yeah. Under one. So pretty good numbers there. Yeah. Do they offer the drops in the hospital? You can bring your own. Okay. <laughs> sure. And you can get them like online through birth supply websites. But yeah. Yeah. The things that you would watch for um, would be like we just talked about bleeding in their poop, abnormal crying, bruising that just shows up out of nowhere. Like if you have kids <laughs> around and they like drop a toy on the baby, <laughs> that's an explained bruise. But if a baby's just a bruise shows up out of nowhere, I would be a little concerned yeah. about that and definitely want to have them looked at. Now, a lot of people are saying, well, why didn't just everyone get the shot? Yeah. Um, so this is kind of where risk versus benefit comes in because the shot also has risks in their package insert. Um, okay. And you can go online and search it and you can see them. There's a website called Just the Inserts and they've gone through and collected data from CDC, World Health Organization, mm. the actual package inserts. And so you can go through and read about the different, you know, risks or side effects that you could be watching out for if you choose to do the shot. So, you know, oh, yeah. So again, it's just more information. That's right? really cool. Yeah. So some of the risks on, this is from the insert, thrombocytopenia, which is a breakdown of platelets. So it diminishes the number of platelets a baby has, which you need platelets for clotting. Yeah. So um, babies can go into shock, cyanosis, which is where babies are blue. Um, scleroderma patches where it looks like their cheeks are really rosy and they're kind of oozy, like okay. crusty. Jaundice is actually a side effect of vitamin K. So if you're giving your baby vitamin K and the baby gets jaundiced, you can be ready for that. <laughs> Cause you'll know. Cause you'll know. Yep. Um, seizures. Um, you can, it actually has intracranial hemorrhage, which is a brain bleed on the insert package and blood abnormalities. And there's a bunch of other ones, but those are just a few that I pulled off. So just like with everything in birth, there's always risks. So as a parent, you get to decide for yourself and your baby, like what do you feel is risk versus benefit? Yeah. And then you get to decide on that. Which doing it or not doing it is riskier for you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, mm. how do you feel about that? For sure. So that's vitamin K in a nutshell. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So that's a brief overview of vitamin K. And then the next injection or the next shot is? Hepatitis B vaccination. Okay. I guess I should explain what hepatitis B actually is. So hepatitis B is a virus that attacks your liver. And the way that you actually contract it is through blood, semen, or saliva. Okay. And so you would have to come in contact with somebody else that has this. So hepatitis B is a standard test that we do in part of the prenatal blood work that we run yeah. on moms. So if moms are getting this, they should already know their status. And home birth moms do this too. Yes. We run lab work on moms. We give them the option. Yeah. Most often <laughs> they choose that. Okay. So it is an option. So you should know what your hepatitis B status is. Also, you would know if you are a high-risk population. Okay. So multiple sex partners, um, IV drug users, people that work in the healthcare field where they come in contact with a lot of like blood, things like that, first responders. Okay, yeah. So these people would be at a higher risk. Going into delivery, you should know your status. Yeah. The only way your baby can get hep B is if that baby comes in contact with blood from somebody else that has it. Right. So as a mother, if you're negative, there's really no way your baby can get it. 
So a lot of people wonder why this is part of the newborn procedures. Mm -hmm. And it really came about like in the like mid to late 1980s and early 90s when like the AIDS pandemic was like a big thing. Yeah. And they were the medium, the press was kind of talking this up like, oh, this is like a big thing like AIDS because you had a lot of correlations there. And so um, they were having a really hard time with the high risk populations taking the hep vac. And so they just decided to put on the newborn schedule because then everybody would have it. Yeah. So that's why newborns are given hepatitis B. Interesting. Yeah. One thing I always tell moms is if you're negative and you're not going home to a high risk area mm-hmm. of something contracting hepatitis B, you can always get it later. Yeah. Like talk to your kids, educate them about, Hey, if you're going to become sexually active, know your risk. Mm. Do you want the hep B shot? Let's get it now. <laughs> sure. So, um, once but, they are at risk, yeah. cause if they're not at risk at birth from you, then right there. Okay. Yes. Now, if a mom has hep B, she comes back positive, then babies will get two different shots. Okay. They'll get the hep B vaccine because a vaccination doesn't give you immediate protection. It has to build up. Yeah. So they'll give you the vaccine and then they'll give the baby what's called, um, it's a hepatitis B immunoglobin shot, which is like the antibodies to hep B to protect them okay. while to help them their fight bodies, it until yep, they can while their body's building up the immunity to that from the shot. So you would, again, if you're positive and you're planning on breastfeeding, if you're just going to formula feed or bottle feed the baby, again, baby can't really get it. But if you're planning on breastfeeding, um, hep B actually doesn't transfer through breast milk. Mm-hmm. But if sometimes when moms are nursing, they crack and bleed, that's when the baby oh, would be at risk of getting right. it. So you had said saliva too. So is this, is, is this if different. we're kissing our babies? Okay. Well, you, it would be a lot. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's the hep B shot. Um, and again, there's always like side effect intervention things. So hep B isn't just like a one and done. For babies. What do you mean? You don't just get one shot and then you're good the rest of your life. Okay. So hep B is like a three dose, maybe four now, but they get the first dose at birth. Uh And then the second dose they get within that first two months. And then the third dose they get between six and 15 months. Huh. So babies don't really develop a very good immunity to hep B really young. So they have to get a lot of boosters. If you get it later in life, do you have to get boosters too? Um, You don't have to get as many. Okay. So some of the side effect risks that you'd want to be aware of if you're giving the baby the shot would be, again, thrombocytopenia, which is the platelet issue, shingles, wow, okay. which is part of the chicken pox virus, meningitis, fever, hives, multiple sclerosis, paralysis, seizures, eczema, alopecia. So alopecia is where your hair just falls out, pink eye, and lupus. Those are just a few. There's more things you'd want to be aware of. These are side effects of getting the potential side effects, I should say. Right. Yes. Uh, The hep B shot. They're on the package inserts of possible adverse reactions. Okay. Um, I guess I should have asked this with the vitamin K2. With these possible reactions, how likely is it to have a reaction? Um, These are rare, but they also haven't really done long-term studies on them either. So we don't know Mm. how to correlate sure outcome okay yeah Mm 
During pregnancy, a woman's body goes through many changes. These changes paired with childbirth can leave many lingering symptoms, some of which include diastasis recti, leaking urine, prolapse, low back or tailbone pain, painful intercourse, and many others. A lot of people will tell you that these things are normal after childbirth, and though they're common, they're not normal. At Shift Physical Therapy, their trained doctors of physical therapy take a holistic approach to evaluating your specific limitations and designing a rehabilitation program to get you back to the activities that you love. If you're interested in learning more about how pelvic floor therapy can help you, call 435-767-1252 or visit www.shiftphysicaltherapy.us to schedule your appointment today. Shift Physical Therapy is contracted with most major insurances, and for our cash-paying listeners, they're offering a 15% discount if you mention this ad while booking. Once again, that's Shift Physical Therapy. If you sell a product or service that you think our listeners could benefit from and are interested in a sponsorship relationship, contact us at thebirthvillagepodcast at gmail.com. Okay, so the next one after Hep B would be erythromycin. So this is an antibiotic ointment. It's about the consistency of like neosporin that they put in the baby's eyes. And this is given to help if the mom has gonorrhea or chlamydia, which are both um, sexually transmitted infections. Mm-hmm. Um, those bacteria, if it gets in the baby's eye at birth, can potentially cause blindness. Okay. Um, when you're looking at this, there's other also other infections and bacteria that could happen, but the erythromycin is predominantly used to treat these okay. infections. So you're saying erythromycin could be used to treat something else as well. But- yeah, so there's other infections. What they're treating is is called neonatal conjunctivitis. Okay. Which is like pink eye. Um, but in the birth world, they're specifically targeting chlamydia and gonorrhea. Okay. So of your two, it's more likely that it's going to be a chlamydia okay. infection than gonorrhea. So chlamydia is like 2 to 40%. Gonorrhea is like 1%. Huh. So um, these are both things you can screen for in pregnancy, though. Right. So you could just do a urine test and know if you were at risk for these. And then you would know, oh, do I need to do this to my baby or not? Yeah. Um. There are other like staph and um, strep infections that babies could get pink eye from, but erythromycin isn't really used to treat those. Oh, okay. So what they do is um, once the baby's born, when they're doing the newborn exam and before they give baby back to mom, they just put like a ribbon of the erythromycin ointment in the baby's eyes and kind of rub it around. And then it's like when you see pictures of newborns and their eyes are shiny, that's what it is. (laughs) Okay. So... Gonorrhea and chlamydia are both sexually transmitted infections. So if you know your sexual history and your partner's sexual history, you would know if your baby was at risk for that. Mm-hmm. If you are concerned, you can get treated before you have the baby. You can get screened before you have the baby. And if you're positive, you can get treated with antibiotics Yeah, to okay. get rid of the infection so that your baby's not at risk for that. Hmm. So in the hospital, this is just administered as a standard practice. Yeah, unless you tell them you don't want it. Why? It's easy, and it covers them if they missed it, oh, right? Okay. So if every baby gets it, then they know that they're covered from not missing a baby that slips through the cracks. Okay. So they just do it. They're pretty good about 
if you know, like, I don't have this, I don't want it. They're pretty good about being like, okay. Allowing you to yeah. reject it. Yeah. Are there, um, I guess the risks of not getting it would be if you transmitted the disease to your baby, then they could be blind. Mm-hmm. You said they could go blind. Yeah. Um, did, did we already discuss the risks of getting it? Are there risks of it? It's an antibiotic ointment. And so the good thing about that one though, is that it's not internal, but it's part of your like mucous eye membranes. And so it can go in there. It causes blurry vision. Um, so there's a little bit of that interruption in the bonding at that first, that oh. first 24 hours. Um, but it's a lot better. They used to use silver nitrate, which would kind of burn the baby's eyes. Mm-hmm. So this is a much better option. So it's more just like unnecessary if it is unnecessary. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. We're not a, there's not a ton of risks to. No. Okay. Yeah. And I guess on the other point, like we talked about other infections that aren't gonorrhea or chlamydia. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a study that showed that colostrum is actually really effective treating those. So like if your baby gets goopy eye, uh-huh. sometimes it's just a matter that their tear ducts aren't opening and so they're not draining. Oh. Other times it could be some bacteria gets in there. So if sure. you just can put a little bit of colostrum in the baby's eyes, it clears it up really well. Mm, just squirt it right in there. Yep. <laughs> cool. Just a side note. Cool. So yeah, what's next? Next would be the newborn metabolic screening. So a lot of people might know this as the PKU. Yeah. So there's been a lot of changes as far as what they're testing for in this specific test over the last 40 years. Hmm. So when they first started, it began in like the 1960s, they were specifically testing for PKU. And this is an amino acid disorder where the body can't break down phenylalanine, which is an amino acid in food. Okay. And so if if your body has the inability to break down this amino acid, it builds up in your body and can cause brain damage and yeah, can be a pretty serious outcome. So um, the metabolic screening is a blood test. In Utah, it's a two-part test. In most states, it's this way. Um, so you do the first test within 24 to 48 hours between that time frame after the baby's born. And then the second test you do after at least seven days. So a lot of babies will get this at their two-week checkup in a pediatrician's office. Midwives can also do this. Okay. Um, I do these quite frequently. And you just poke the baby's heel, and there's seven little circles that you put a drop of blood in each one. So usually when I do this on babies, I'll have the babies make sure they're really warm so they bleed easier. I'll have the babies nurse while I do it. Um to just, just so make them comfortable? Yeah. It's all about just keeping the baby calm and comfortable. It makes it easier on me because the baby's not so wiggly. Yeah. But then also, like, it's not traumatic for the baby. So you do the two different screenings. In Utah now, we test over 40 different disorders. Whoa. And there's, like, different categories. And so these are these are disorders that you wouldn't know your baby had until you were seeing signs of oh. um, negative reactions and where it may be too late at Mm -hmm. that point yeah okay of these of all the different disorders you have when you're talking about like how often does this happen yeah um in utah this is specific utah stats but you have one in 300 babies come out with a diagnosis that's positive for something in the metabolic screening of those 40 different disorders so the different disorder categories are amino acid disorders endocrine fat breakdown 
hemoglobin disorders, immunodeficiency, so like your immune system being able to function correctly, and then neuromuscular, so it would affect crawling, walking, breathing, things like that. And then organic acid, so these are essential enzymes that would be missing that help break down and make things work properly. And then um, they have like a cystic fibrosis and um, some other things they test for. But um, the the Utah Newborn Metabolic Screening website, you can go through and click on their disorders and read about every single one. So you kind of know what they're testing for. So within each of those categories, they'll test for like eight or two or it depends on what it is. So there's a lot that goes in into that screen. Um, So... What they do is the first, the reason they do two, a lot of people are like, well, why do I need two? Yeah. We already did one and it was fine. Yeah. Um, so that first test, they're testing for things that would be accurate, that wouldn't be affected by if the baby's been eating or mom's hormones or anything okay. like that would inter- that would interfere with the test. So like if a mom's breastfeeding, usually their milk comes in within two to four days and then 48 hours later is when that part of that test would be accurate. So like the yeah. amino acid disorder ones, things like that. Um, so the first test, if any of those are positive, they can rescreen the baby to make sure it wasn't a false positive and start treatment sooner. Yeah. And then we do the second test to catch all those other ones that aren't accurate with the first screening. Yeah. So this is one that is um, required by law. However, there is a refusal form you can sign as a parent if you really don't want to do this. Okay. So just know that's also an option. But risks versus benefits here is, is the risk just not wanting to poke your baby? Yeah. Yeah, I guess. And then you also, I guess you could have a false positive and then the stress of that. Okay. Um, But again, you would rescreen. They always have you rescreen if a test comes back with positive. Okay. Um, and then the good thing about this one is you're not injecting the baby with anything. So there's not that type of adverse reaction that you're looking for. It's yeah. just pain at the injection site for that first little bit. Um, one thing that I find when I do them is that when you keep babies nursing and warm and comfortable, they'll have like a little bit of a delayed reaction after that initial poke. You just kind of poke them and leave them alone for a second. Mm-hmm. And then you get them re-nursing again. And most of the time they might just kind of get bugged to have my hand on their foot because they don't like it yeah (laughs) but usually my babies um it's really not traumatic I've had babies sleep through it yeah like they don't even respond they're just like Eh, whatever I I don't even think my baby I I know he was so Janae was my midwife um I don't he was nursing I don't think he even jumped or anything yeah I get Mm. that a lot Cool. So if you're going to do it, tell the whoever's doing your test that you're going to nurse your baby while you do it. <laughs> or like, or just be like, oh, we're doing that? Okay, let me nurse my baby first. Yeah. Um, okay, so metabolic screening. Again, if you want to learn about that one, Utah State Metabolic Screening has a really good website that has tons of information on it. Great. And if you're doing a home birth with a midwife, they should have um, information where you can order the card. Mm-hmm. And it comes to your house. And then we just do it at postpartum visits. Okay. So... Um, so the next one would be a hearing screening. Um, so a lot of people wonder why they need a hearing screening because their baby looks at them and turns to loud noises and startles and all these things. So, um, babies can have hearing loss at certain frequencies. 
Hmm. Or even just the fact that they're newborns, they have startle reflexes. So if they feel a vibration, they'll oh, startle, yeah. they'll cry, they'll like make baby noises. It's just instinctual. Yeah. But they might have, they might be able to hear, but maybe they have a hearing loss at high tones or low frequencies. Um, and so this hearing screening catches those. Yeah. And the sooner you can find out if a baby has hearing loss, the sooner they can start with treatments to help them integrate into a hearing world a lot easier and make their life a lot easier streamline. Okay. So this is actually a really easy screening if your baby's sleeping. Mm-hmm. So it's just a little probe that we put in baby's ear and it just, as soon as you get it all adjusted right, it's like 30 seconds maybe. Mm. It's pretty quick. Um, again, babies need to be quiet because the noise can interfere with the test. And so I do the first, I try to do the first screening at that 24 to 48 hour postpartum visit. If you're in a hospital, they'll do it before you go home. Okay. If that first one doesn't pass, um, sometimes it's just that there's still vernix or fluid or junk in the baby's ears from birth. (laughs) Okay. So I'll rescreen them again at their seven to 10 day postpartum visit because by then it's all cleared out. Yeah. If that one doesn't pass, then you want to be tested for cytomegalovirus which is a virus that a lot of people get and don't even know they have. What? Yeah, it's just kind of a silent virus. But if a baby gets it in utero, it can cause hearing loss. Oh, wow. So if a baby fails their hearing screening, it's a saliva test, Mm -hmm. and you just send that to the lab to make sure they don't have cytomegalovirus, Mm. congenital cytomegalovirus. If they do, there's treatment for it yeah so they would definitely start you would go to a pediatrician and make sure that they start getting treatment for that but um, it can cause damage to their ears okay so that's one other reason for it in addition to like oh my baby can hear yeah oh my baby doesn't have cytomegalovirus because yeah. most of the times you wouldn't know you had it so like moms with toddlers um sharing spoons if they drink out of your drink yeah you know things like that it's it's spread pretty easily oh my gosh so. Um, so cytomegalovirus can, if the mom gets it during pregnancy and it's transmitted to the baby, it can cause brain damage, damage to the eyes or ears, um, developmental disabilities, cognitive impairment. So Mm. things like that. So the hearing screening is more than just, can your baby hear? It's also another screening for cytomegalovirus. Because we want to catch it as early as we can. Yeah. Yep. So that's the screening for hearing. Again, it's pretty easy. Yeah. Would there be any reason to refuse that screening? Not really. Okay. Unless you just don't want your baby messed with. Yeah. I don't know. It's not super invasive. No, it doesn't hurt the babies. In fact, I have some babies that they're kind of like fussy when I start and then the, the noise from the hearing screening, they kind of stop and (laughs) like, wait, what's that? Yeah. And Hmm. it's not loud. Like it's, just interesting. Yeah. Like when you're elementary school and they put the headphones on, they're like, here's the beep on this side and here's the beep on this yeah. side. I don't know if they still do that, but <laughs> it's kind of like that. But okay. yeah, so it's screening for hearing loss at different frequencies too. Okay. And then if if a baby fails both of mine, then I would send them to an audiologist to get a more in-depth screen. Okay. Um, and then your last one would be bilirubin screening. Bilirubin is basically jaundice. Yeah. That's what most people know it by. When babies are born, um, their livers aren't always functioning 
efficiently enough to filter out the bilirubin that's building up. Okay. So bilirubin comes from broken down red blood cells, which our bodies are always making and breaking down. Okay. Yeah. Bilirubin's a byproduct and our livers just filter it out and we don't turn yellow. <laughs> so with babies, if they are not nursing well or they're not pooping a lot, the bilirubin can build up. Mm. So you have two kinds of jaundice. You have physiological and pathological. Physiological jaundice is just that it's just this bilirubin buildup and everything else with the baby is fine. They're nursing well. There's good muscle tone. When they're awake, they're alert and looking around. Yeah. Um, And those kind of babies, you just want to watch and make sure that they're not changing their behavior. Like floppy, lethargic. Yeah. Um, You can't wake them up. They're just kind of like a rag doll. Or like really high-pitched screaming, those kinds of things. So um, if your baby is not, it is acting normal otherwise? So you have a few options. Okay. Um, if it's just like in their face and like up on their chest a little bit, that's just physiological jaundice. If it starts going down into their legs and their feet and their eyes turn really yellow or they start getting more orange than yellow, you might mm-hmm. want to have it checked. Okay. So the risk is if bilirubin builds up to too high of a level, it can cause brain damage. And then you can get what's, there's two different risk factors. One would be called acute bilirubin encephalopathy. And the other one is cernicterus. I don't think I'm saying that right. (laughs) I'm impressed with your pronunciation (laughs) of all of these words. (laughs) Um, So that's when um, like brain damage is occurring because of the bilirubin levels. Okay. So this is pretty rare. Those two are both pretty rare just because we have the capability to screen and start treatment before that bilirubin level gets too high. So um, safe bilirubin levels are based on age of baby. So usually they'll screen babies two to three days after birth. And usually they want you to be, depending on the average is 24 to 48 hours, you want to be under a 15. This is a blood screen. Yeah. So okay. you do have to poke your baby again. Okay. I don't do these. Um. Okay. Just because you can see it? Yeah. It's, well, um, most babies just have the physiological jaundice where it just turns yellow. Yeah. And they're fine. Okay. So you just nurse them a lot, just put them in the sun, and it clears out. Um, if you notice that the babies are having a hard time pooping, if they're not nursing frequently, um, then I would maybe advise going to get their levels checked. Yeah. Just so that you can start treatment sooner than later, kind of get ahead of the curve. Yeah. So it doesn't build up so fast with these things. The best treatments are nursing. So if you're a nursing mom, Mm -hmm. you want to nurse between eight and 12 times a day. Mm -hmm. If you're um, bottle feeding, then you want to do one to two ounces every two to three hours, which this is also great because this frequent nursing pattern at the beginning also helps your milk come in, helps get the baby yeah. a good latch, things like that. So kind of hitting double-edged sword, two things with one. Um, that's that's why they're screening for bilirubin is to try and prevent. It's called hyperbilirubinemia, and they're just trying to prevent that brain damage that can occur if the bilirubin gets too high. Yeah. So the way they treat for babies that have the higher levels of bilirubin, depending on their age. And if you're curious, you know, like if you go in and your baby gets screened and they tell you a number, you can just go online and look up bilirubin levels in a newborn and you can see, oh, this many days old, it should be under this number. Okay. And then if the baby's higher than what you want it to be, then they give you, um, they're called Billy lights. Mm-hmm. It's like a baby tanning bed, or they also have them in blankets. They're like blue lights that help break down the bilirubin. And they'll want you to come back every day to do a blood test and make sure that 
the levels aren't rising and then they should start dropping. Mm-hmm. So that's treatment for high bilirubin. But just with everything, there have been some studies that show phototherapy could cause some issues um, later on in life, like developing asthma, type 1 diabetes. Um, mm-hmm. I think epilepsy was on there. Um, so, you know, just like with everything, there's risk and you get to decide risk versus benefit for your yeah. baby and kind of how you want to treat that. But yeah. If you were to ask a, any provider about all of these things, could we assume that most of them would give lots of information about this or might somebody have to seek out a lot of this information? It really depends on your provider okay, and how much time they have with you. Okay. So if you're in a really busy OB office and you see your provider for like five minutes, probably you won't get a lot of info. They might just kind of be like, oh, well, we screen it for this. Yeah. And not a lot of extra information, pros and cons, options, things like that. So I'm like, I'm just somebody that I think it's good to be educated for yourself. Yeah. Go out and do some research, go out and look some things up and then bring that to your visit. Oh yeah. You know, like, oh, I, I found some things about this. Can we talk about it? Yeah. And not with the like intention to be like, I'm going to prove you wrong or, (laughs) you know, but just like, I've read this. What are your thoughts or what are some options? Or if I don't feel comfortable with this, like what else can we do? Yeah. Kind of a thing. So I'm just big on people being educated and not doing things because they were told to. Yeah. I think that's important. I would agree with you on that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So then the last one that they do is what's called a CCHD screening. This one's super easy. It's just a pulse oximeter and it's for critical congenital heart defect. And what we're testing is we do a pulse ox on the baby's right hand and then one of their feet. And the oxygenation saturation should be within like a couple of numbers of each other. So like a 94 and a 97 or a 98 and a 99, Mm -hmm. the two different numbers. And that's just um, letting us know that the heart is circulating and oxygenating the blood correctly. Yeah. Um, and if they're not within range, then we would send them in and have their hearts checked to make sure that they don't have a heart defect. Mm, Sounds okay. really not invasive. It yeah. doesn't hurt babies. It's just a soft pulse oximeter that goes around them. So that's kind of the last main one that of the newborn procedures that we do. Yeah. And most midwives do most of those. You yeah. can't do hepatitis B shots because we're not, licensed for pharmaceutical um that is a prescription based um i send my babies that are wanting bilirubin like parents that want their bilirubin screen done i just send them to a pediatrician and they go to the lab because it's kind of um just easier yeah <laughs> lab based because it's in in-house and it's just a faster result yeah but i can do all the others yeah so. and the, but the hospital does all of them yes yep and is this something that like, um, do they ask you if you want it or do they just do it? Um, most of the time you're just informed that this is what's going to happen. Okay. Um, honestly, a doula would be a better person to ask because I don't <laughs> spend a lot of time in the hospitals. That's fair. That's, <laughs> that's really fair. Um, well, I, I do want to ask you this question though. Why would healthcare offer all of these procedures if they weren't you know more beneficial than not like it seems like in a hospital they're typically going to do these things 
And a lot of times, maybe in a home birth, they're not going to do as many of these things. Um, so why does healthcare push these treatments or offer them so emphatically? Um, so these things have all just kind of been put on like what standard care is like, this is just what you do. Okay. Um, obviously like we've talked about, some of these can be really beneficial. Mm -hmm. Um, they're trying to catch those one in 600,000 or the one Um, in 300, you know, um, just to try and catch the babies that do have it. Yeah. So they just screen everybody. So, um, that's, I think why it's important to know for your own self, how you feel about risk versus benefit. Like, is it really necessary for you to have this? Yeah. Are you at risk for any of these with your baby? You know, mm-hmm. so that's kind of where the education part comes in. Yeah. Um, and it covers them medically, like malpractice wise, they're covered. Okay. That um, makes sense. But I, I mean, really healthcare workers, we all just want healthy babies. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of the most important thing. So, um, in a hospital setting, there are policies that they put into place to keep themselves safe and keep themselves protected from adverse outcome. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of moms don't know options. And so they just do whatever is offered to them. So, so this is just where the informed part of informed consent comes in. Yes, which is what every procedure should have. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So again, I'm not like, do this, don't do this. Yeah. Like, I just think it's important to have the education, information, and then you make the right decision for you. And it could be different than somebody else, and that's okay. Right. Awesome. Thank you so much for all this information. Yeah. We do have some sources that we will cite and some of the websites that Janae mentioned earlier. So check that out if you're interested. And as always, if you have any questions for us, you can definitely send them into us via email. One last time, Janae, thank you for being with us. Thank you for all of this information. I am sure that we'll have you on again to get to know you a little bit better, but I really appreciate you coming on and helping us inform our listeners today. Sure. It's been great. (laughs) Okay. So once again, our email address, if you would like to reach us with any questions or comments or anything like that is the birth village podcast at gmail.com. You can check us out on Instagram at the birth village podcast, and we would love to hear what you think about the podcast, what you would like to hear in the future and any questions that you have relating to pregnancy, birth and child rearing. If you'd like to help us spread our message, please rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. And as always, I'll leave you with this reminder, empowered women, empower women. Thanks for listening.